grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this third study lesson in a series of 10 lessons here at the Village Church this fall as we are studying through the book of Revelation. I'm Jack Baca, pastor of the church, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to this study. Today we are looking at Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 22. And I hope you've had a chance to read those chapters, and perhaps also you will have the book open to these chapters as we work through them over the next 20 minutes or so. This section of Revelation is primarily concerned with seven letters to seven churches. And in some ways, it's easier to understand these seven individual pieces if we take them as a whole. All of these letters are messages from the risen Jesus Christ to his church. In the opening uh, words of Revelation, Christ appears to John and gives him a message to give to the churches. And that's what we begin to study in some detail today. There are common themes, common questions, common issues that Jesus addresses in each of these letters. And to be honest, each of them really is more like a prophetic message than just a simple letter. As we look at these seven letters, we're meant to understand that they are not just for those seven particular congregations, but they are for all Christians everywhere. The issues they address are timeless issues. These letters tell us something about what was going on in the life of real churches in John's time, and we're going to hear about what is happening not just in those churches, but about what God is doing in the divine realm and his relationship with those churches. Each one of the letters begins with an address to the angel of the church, the angel of the church of Ephesus, for instance. You see, John is addressing the angel of each church as a way of saying that the church is related to God through the presence of an angel, something like a, a guardian angel, if you will. One of the things that Christians have always understood is that the church itself, that fellowship of believers of which you and I are a part, is a, an earthly manifestation, an earthly uh, representation, if you will, of something that's actually heavenly, something that's spiritual. The seven letters are written to seven churches in seven cities, and that number seven, of course, is extremely important. Seven represents a, a, the completion, the wholeness of something. Why not write to six churches or to ten churches? There were certainly that many churches in, in the day that Revelation was written, but by writing to seven, we are meant to understand that this is Jesus' complete message to all of his churches. Why would these letters go to these particular seven churches in these particular seven cities? Well, as it turns out, each one of these cities was on a main Roman road of the time, and each one of these cities contained a Roman court of law where Christians could be tried and then perhaps even executed if found guilty, tried for the evidence of their faith. And that's, of course, one of the main issues of the entire book of Revelation. 
Christians in this period were struggling with how to be faithful to Christ in the midst of a culture that had no use for Jesus, primarily no understanding of Jesus, and the Christians, of course, were running into trouble following Jesus in a culture that that did not understand and, frankly, that was counter to or, or, or apathetic about or even antithetical to what Christians believed and what later on they would do. There is a prophetic message, of course. John speaks in a prophetic way, an Old Testament style, speaking as if from on high, the Word of God, speaking God's Word to people then and, of course, God's Word to us today. In each of these letters, there is a reference to Jesus Christ. And again, we're hearing the message of Jesus to his churches. These are messages from the Lord of the church, from the one who is inspiring and leading the church. And of course, Christian life, the life that you and I lead, as well as the lives that they led, is all about how we live now with Jesus as our Lord and no other. God knows what's going on in his churches. That's another subtle message and sometimes not so subtle of revelation. God knows what is happening. He is not removed. He's not distant. He has not turned his back on the churches. God is present. God is active. God is alive. There are many theological issues that are at play in these different letters. There's the issue of attention and obedience. Constantly, uh, John says here, Obey. He who has an ear, let him hear. It's like he's saying, if you're not obeying me, you're not listening to me. You're not hearing me. But if you do truly hear what I have to say, then you will obey. There are some eschatological issues going on here, issues that have to do with the end of everything. Eschatology wants to talk about the consummation of God's history, about where God is going to take everything. And there is a blessing pronounced for many of these churches, a blessing if they will hear and obey and remain faithful to Jesus Christ. That blessing is discussed in different ways. It's, it's talked about as, as eating of the tree of life or not being hurt by the second death or receiving hidden manna. All of those are ways of talking about how God blessed his church in the past and how God will bless his church in the future. The upshot of all of this is that these congregations that we're going to hear about are nothing less than manifestations of the structure and reality of heaven itself. You see, the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be an early expression, if you will, a precursor or a forerunner of what human existence will be like within the heavenly realm, within the perfection of God's presence and God's being. So we have here in the body of the message to these churches uh, many different issues, many different questions, but they all boil down to the same issue and the same question, and that is whether or not these individual Christians and these churches as a whole will remain faithful to Jesus Christ, whether they will conquer as Jesus has conquered, whether they will conquer the evil that they now face. So, what are the churches facing? What are they up against? Well, they're up against tribulation. Now, I would suspect that in your study of Revelation in previous times, you may have heard about the tribulation. 
and often it's discussed as a time that will come right before the end of all history, when Jesus will come back, when there will be great tribulation, great trial, uh, great difficulty for the church. But in fact, as you read these letters and then read all the rest of the body of literature that comprises the New Testament, we understand that in a sense, tribulation is a, is a permanent state of being for the church. We cannot help but run into obstacles and problems with the culture around us, even within ourselves, as we follow Jesus. And so, in this first century, when Revelation is being written and read to first century Christians, we understand that they are a religious minority within a minority. And as they turn their attention now to Jesus and begin to live the way that Jesus taught them to live and begin to understand reality in the way that Jesus taught them to understand it, there would be social consequences. They would be shunned by their friends. There would be business consequences. They might be excluded from business dealings or not allowed to participate in the guilds and trade associations of the time. There might even be life and death consequences as they would be martyred for not confessing that Caesar is Lord and instead confessing that Jesus is Lord. All of these earthly troubles, of course, reflect cosmic battles, if you will. They reflect the, the big battle between good and evil, between God and, and, and the devil. The battles that you and I face, that any individual Christian faces as we turn either towards a life of faithfulness or a life of sinfulness, that is, that is a reflection of the battle that's going on in the spiritual, in the heavenly realm. Now, there are other things going on beside the tribulation that Christians experience in the world of first century. There are also divisions within the churches themselves and problems that the churches had of, of learning how to get along with each other. John writes about Jezebel and Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And remember, John is using names and stories and images from the Old Testament to speak about current situations. Jezebel, of course, was the queen, the queen who, who promoted foreign cults. She was not a true believer in Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. Balaam was one who tempted Israel to idolatry. The Nicolaitans are a little bit more confusing to us, but perhaps they are those who, who are fighting against the people themselves. Maybe it's a reference to the people fighting with themselves. All of these are, are John's ways of describing Jesus' message about the problems that the early church faced of simply staying together, of staying unified. The Christians faced many different life and death issues. They wanted to, to find a way to follow Jesus and, and yet still survive, and yet that was often difficult for them to do. And so they are called to repent. Five of the seven churches that are discussed in these passages are called to repentance. Now, in the New Testament, repentance is not just about feeling sorry about something and, and saying, Jesus, would you please save me, and just being done with it. Repentance is really about a continual reorientation of your life. The word repentance literally means to change direction or to turn around. And every Christian and every association of Christians, churches, are continually reorienting their lives toward Christ because it's so difficult sometimes to, to find the right way to follow Jesus or to, or to resist the temptation not to follow Jesus. And sometimes we have to discuss exactly what it does mean to follow Jesus. 
And so we continually must repent, if you will. These churches are encouraged to hold firm. Again, that's one of the main issues of Revelation itself, to hold firm. Verse 2-2 or chapter 2-3 or 2-19 or 3-10, all of them talk about patient endurance, standing your ground, staying faithful to Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, verse 21, in a sense, you have the summary of this whole section. Jesus speaking to the church says, To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself, Jesus, have conquered. That's the real question. Christians believe that Jesus has already conquered all the evil that exists in all of creation. Of course, that evil is still alive and well, and as we live out our lives, we do battle with it, but the one who we follow has already conquered, and we conquer too as we follow him. And as we conquer in our own lives, as we remain faithful, we share in the glory that Jesus already has and that one day we will have. Now, that's kind of a, a summary of, of the general message to all of these churches. But, of course, there are specific things spoken to each of the churches. Let's look for a few minutes at, at those individual messages. Let's talk about Ephesus. Some of you perhaps have been to Ephesus. I personally have been to five of the seven uh, cities that are discussed here in these opening chapters of Revelation. And uh, Ephesus probably is the most popular uh, tourist destination, if you will, these days. Been a lot of excavation. There's some beautiful Roman ruins there. And it's a wonderful place to go and get a feel for what it was like for the early Christians there as they simply lived in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is described by the Spirit of Christ as being doctrinally pure. They know what they believe, but they have lost their first love. What's that about? Well, Ephesus perhaps was very wound up in thinking theologically correct things and in discussing doctrine, uh, but, but so much so that they lost their sense of passion for following Jesus. They lost their sense of what it meant actually to, to live according to the way that Jesus taught them to live, and instead all they did was talk about theology. Then there's Smyrna. Smyrna is accused of, of being rich in some ways, but poor in, in other ways. Smyrna itself was a, a wealthy town. And so as the Spirit of Christ through John speaks to these Christians in Smyrna, they say, yeah, we're rich, we're wealthy, but oh, wait a minute, you're saying that we're poor? We don't exactly know what kind of poverty the Spirit meant, but the Christians there certainly knew. Perhaps they were, they were poor in, in the fact that they did not give and share their wealth with other people. Perhaps they were poor in, in learning about the love and compassion of Jesus Christ. In either case, we are told, uh, the Spirit says to the church in Smyrna, that, that they need not fear, that they need not worry about the suffering that would come in living in Jesus' way, because God has the last word. Pergamum. Let's talk about Pergamum for a moment. Pergamum is described as being beset by sins of idolatry and, and interpersonal immortality. Immorality, that's the word I meant to say, immorality. And yet they still have the example of Antipas, a faithful martyr. Ah, there we go. Antipas is one who already has been executed because of his faithfulness to Jesus Christ. 
Antipas is an example, not just to the church in Pergamum, but to the church everywhere. They will be given a white stone, we're told. A white stone in the Roman era was a, was a common thing. The Romans would give a white stone as a symbol of valor, a, a symbol of courage, a symbol of a new identity, perhaps. When the Spirit says to the Christians they'll be given a white stone, they know that that white stone indicates their courage and, and their, new, uh, their new image, if you will, that they have in following Jesus. Then there's Thyatira. Thyatira is a loving church, a faithful church, but it is being tempted. It's being tempted to, to go astray and to give up its faith. The idolatry, perhaps, was in the temptation to participate in the trade guilds of the day. Uh, we might call them the, the different unions, the different uh, business organizations of the day. You see, if you participated in those business organizations, you also participated in, in religious idolatry because each one had its own pagan god. Each one celebrated its own pagan rituals as part of its business practice. And so Christians were in a difficult place. How could they conduct their business and yet also maintain their faithfulness to Jesus when they were being asked by their guild or their association to to conduct themselves in these idolatrous practices and, and to follow these idolatrous ways of thinking. Sardis. Let's talk about Sardis for a moment. Sardis has the name of being outwardly alive, but inwardly Sardis was not so alive. Sardis was a place where people were known for their faith, and perhaps they even promoted themselves as being people of faith and said, yeah, we've got it all straight, but, but the Spirit of Christ knew that inside there was, there was corruption, there was decay, there were problems in the way that people lived, in the way that people thought. That reminds us that a Christian's job is not so much to be outwardly faithful, but to be inwardly faithful not to talk a good game, but then not walk a good game. Then there's the church in Philadelphia. This church has been faithful. It's a faithful church, and, and God is going to be faithful to the church in Philadelphia, we're told. And then finally, Laodicea. Laodicea is an interesting place. It was a, a city that was fed by an aqueduct that came from hot springs, and yet by the time the water got to the city, it was merely lukewarm. The Spirit says to the Christians in Laodicea, you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. You're sort of there in your faith with Jesus. You're sort of there in your practice of Christianity, but, but not really on fire, not really hot about your faith. True Christians realize that their spiritual need before God never allows them to become complacent or comfortable and just lukewarm, so-so kind of Christians. I realize this is a very quick summary of a lot of material, a lot of information. I know that as you discuss it in your small groups or as you read further and think further, that you're going to learn a whole lot more. But here's the, the overall message that I would want you to take from, uh, from this discussion of these churches. Think about the description of the problems that the churches have, their weaknesses, their failures. Are those failures and weaknesses in our own church? Think about them for yourself personally as well. 
Am I lukewarm? Am I a Christian in name only? Am I being tempted to follow other gods and other ways of believing? Those are good questions to ask as we think even more so about how we need to ask Jesus to help us stand firm, to help us be passionate and alive in our relationship with him, to help us uh, conquer the evil that's within us, the evil that's within our church communities sometimes, the evil that's in the world. Jesus already has conquered, and he promises he'll help us do the same. God bless. Look forward to seeing you again.